Hey, whether you enjoy listening to Breaking Down Collapse or Building Up Resilience, I think you'll also really enjoy our bonus content on Patreon. Yeah, Kellen and I take 20 minutes each week to talk about the news that's happening all around us and Collapse as it plays out. We like to have a little fun with it, but also make sure that you're aware of what's going on in the world of Collapse. We look forward to having you join us there. The link to join us on Patreon is in the episode description. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hi, my name is Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic, and I'm excited to talk to you about Club Med. Club Med operates beach and mountain resorts and is the best all-inclusive getaway for families. They have Club Med Punta Cana, their flagship family resort, and many other options in Mexico, the Caribbean, and around the world. Club Med are the pioneers of the all-inclusive concept, which is the best way to vacation. Great for families, groups, or even solo travelers looking for land and water sports, delicious food and a place to make unforgettable memories. Visit clubmed.us, call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hey, welcome back to Breaking Down Collapse. Corey and Kellen here again for another scintillating episode. Today we're going to talk about some pretty crazy things. And before we dive in, Kellen, I just wanted to ask kind of where your thoughts are at after this last week. Well, I'm actually starting to really look forward to this conversation each week. As you've been teaching me about these concepts and about collapse, I've started thinking about it a lot more. And I can't tell if I'm seeing more things Or if things are just getting crazier. But I feel like things are particularly crazy right now. Like the political climate is just a total mess. Uh, There's all sorts of natural disasters going on. There's all all sorts of craziness going on. And I don't know if I would have been as tuned into it before. But now it's starting to feel kind of all-consuming. I think both things are true. That both things are getting crazier. And also, like I mentioned in the first episode, once you start to see and understand collapse, you don't really unsee it. And everything has that sort of collapse perspective. Most people right now can tell that things are different, that we're going in a weird direction. There is more happening all at once, and it's kind of chaotic. And for some people, they may just think that this is something that's going to pass, right? You hear people all the time, you see memes all over about how terrible 2020 is, and can 2021 just get here already so that we can get through this? But a collapse-aware person looks at this and says, well, sadly, 2020 is probably one of the best years of the decades to come, which is not a fun way to think about it, but it's a more realistic way to think about it. That sounds terribly pessimistic. (laughs) It does. And maybe it is, but most collapse where people will scoff at the word normal because this is the new normal. And not only is this the new normal, but normal just gets harder and harder from here. But I think it's generally true that people are starting to wake up a little bit more to the idea of America maybe not being this super insulated place where nothing bad can happen. And that just like things have happened in other countries that caused them to collapse or cause their people lots of trouble maybe we're not immune to that, and that maybe we could suffer the same consequences that they have as well. People tend to think that America is just this beautiful, perfect place and that we're too big to fail. But if 2020 has shown us anything, it's that there are vulnerabilities and cracks in the system. And I think that by listening to this podcast, 
I'm hoping to give people a way to not only justify those thoughts and really put the puzzle together to be able to see what it all means. I'm really excited to learn whatever we're going to be talking about today. But I will say, just from knowing you for a long time and being friends for a long time, I don't feel like you're less cheerful of a person since you've started getting into all this collapse stuff. So how do you maintain such a positive attitude, even though we're talking about something that is kind of a pessimistic way of looking at the world? Well, in the first episode, we talked about how this can be kind of detrimental to mental health for a lot of people. And you actually mentioned, when you brought up the question in that episode, you said, I'm the type of person that kind of can get depressed watching the news and when everything adds up. So before I answer that question, I want to know, at this point, do you feel like this is something you're comfortable continuing to learn about? Or do you feel like in yourself, you worry that maybe this could cause maybe unwanted like mental health feelings? Yeah, I guess it's a fair question to turn it back on me like that. <laughs> I feel like it in some ways increases my anxiety just a little bit, makes me feel a little paranoid about everything that's going on around me. At the same time, it's kind of empowering, I guess. It's nice to feel like I can see danger coming and proactively prepare for it rather than trying to react to it when it hits me like a slap in the face. Yeah, that's a great way of thinking about it. And that's that's basically the answer that I would give as well. That for me, I like to know what my options are. If something's coming, I want to know what it is. And not everybody is that way. So some people might get way worse anxiety or they might, with the thought of things getting really bad, might obsess over that and become depressed over it. And it's because we all have different minds. We all think different ways. For some people who might already be susceptible to mental health issues like that, this is just something that could exacerbate that. And so like I gave the warning in the first episode, I'll give it again here, right? Especially because this episode is a little bit heavier. This is the one where we're going to talk about why I believe we will collapse and the most likely mechanism for which it's going to happen. But to answer your question again, I just feel like if I know more or less what's going to happen, then I can start making decisions to protect myself, to help protect my family now. And like you said, if we're ignorant to it, then when it happens, it's going to be too late to make any sort of preparations. And so for me, knowing, being able to see the signs, it actually calms me down a little bit. Am I still anxious? Of course, because I know it's not going to be fun. But I personally would rather be in the situation that I'm in right now than in the situation that I see a lot of people in, just going about their daily lives. And when things get worse, they're going to wonder why. And they're going to not be able to react to that in a way that's going to be beneficial to them or sadly to other people as well. I like that thought. And if nothing else, aside from the like mental health stuff, I also find myself feeling some sort of like a morbid curiosity. <laughs> I feel like I'm, as I, as I'm starting to recognize this as a potential reality, I feel like I'm watching a train wreck and I can't look away. And so I find myself becoming really fascinated by the topic and I feel a need to learn more about it. Yeah, and that's actually a coping mechanism that a lot of people use and that I myself use as well. And I think we'll do an episode on how to cope with all this because a lot of people want to talk about that. But like a lot of people look at it as we are going to live through one of the most important and substantial eras in human history. And while it's not fun, it is significant and it's kind of cool in a morbid way to be a part of it and to witness it. Once you've accepted that it's going to be difficult, and once you've accepted that you may not make it, you can at least go into it with an attitude of like, like, let's just see how this happens. It is a train wreck. It's a mess. Watching right now everything that's going on is a train wreck. And so being in the know, understanding what's happening when it's happening, and being able to view it from the point of, of someone living through it, you know, keep a journal. Keep a history for the future generations to be able to read about how this all happened. That sort of thing, I think, is a great way to, to cope with it, especially if it's something that you feel anxiety about. Well said. Thanks. So learning about all this presents, for a lot of people, a shift in the way they view their world. And some would call that a paradigm shift. We tend to view the world from where and when we live. We're kind of in this bubble, and to most Westerners, the world is what we see around us every day. To a starving child in a war-torn country in Africa, you know, they view the world as cruel and desolate, where we view this world of being more plentiful. But once we step outside of that world and really catch a glimpse 
of what other people live and go through, that can present a paradigm shift. So it's just a shift in realizing the way that the world operates. Yeah, that makes complete sense to me. I think we've mentioned here on the podcast that I lived in Mexico for a while and it was completely eye-opening to be in a totally different culture, see the way people live, see poverty that we couldn't even dream of here. And when I came back to the United States, I feel like I saw the world from a completely different lens than everyone else around me. So that whole idea of comparing other situations to our own and having a paradigm shift, I think is spot on. Do you have an example of a way you felt or something you saw when you came back that hit you particularly hard? Yeah, I'm sure I could think of all sorts of examples. I think off the top of my head, the first week when I came back after being in Mexico for years, I went to a buffet and I ate like one roll and was stuffed. I was like, the food here is so rich. And I saw people just leaving plates of food and going back for more. And I was like, everyone here is just so gluttonous and wasteful. Yeah. And now I've kind of adjusted and I do the same thing when I go to a buffet now. But it definitely was eye-opening to see that we just live a very luxurious, over-the-top lifestyle. Yeah, I can absolutely attest to that. Because as you know, I, I also spent some time in Latin American countries and had the same experience. It was unbelievable to see the life that some of these people lived in and the immense poverty. And I think that some of those people from these countries, even some of the poorest that we saw, might go to a, you know, a village in Africa and they might be blown away at how little they saw there. And so the amount and difference of poverty and wealth and plenty versus desperation, it's just this crazy difference, right? And most people don't get the chance to see that or understand it or really try. People also tend to view their problems based on the immediate. What is happening to me right now that is bothering me or that I need to overcome in order to take another step forward? We very rarely view problems on a larger perspective. And so I think it's particularly important to try and think outside the box and think into the future and really try and view society's problems from a much bigger box than just the one that we're used to living in. Now, speaking of paradigm shifts, I think there is a term that a lot of people think that they understand, but they really don't grasp the full impact of is exponential growth. And exponential growth is a hugely important thing to understand when talking about collapse. And so I think we should take just a minute and really make sure that the scope of exponential growth is understood. So exponential growth is when something grows at a certain percentage rate, and then it compounds on itself. I think we all kind of get that. If you are in debt and you owe interest on that, then that interest is going to compound over time. And if you've seen a graph that shows an exponential growth curve, they call it a hockey stick graph, is essentially it stays flat for a really, really long time. And then it gradually starts to increase until suddenly it's almost as if it's going vertical. And every exponential growth curve has that point where everything changes and all of a sudden the growth speeds up to unimaginable numbers. And to kind of put in context, um, I want to give a couple examples of exponential growth. So the first one comes from a video online called There's No Tomorrow. And this is a great video to watch if you're interested in what we're talking about here in, I think it's an hour long, it really lays out this whole principle. So after listening to this podcast, go watch the video because it's amazing. But one example that they give on there when they're talking about exponential growth is that of a standard size chessboard. If you take one grain of rice and put it on the first square and then double it and put two grains of rice on the second square and double that and put four grains of rice on the third and so on and so forth on all 64 squares, what type of number would you think you come up with at the end? Yeah, I don't know for sure. But by the way you're describing it, I imagine it's something just astronomical. <laughs> it is. By the time you hit the 64th square, you would have, it's 19 digits. So the number is, I'm going to read it off here just because it's fascinating. 9 quintillion, 223 quadrillion, 372 trillion, 36 billion, 854 million, 776,000 grains of rice. That is more rice than has been grown in the entirety of human history. Okay, that is just outrageous. I thought you were going to say, like, you'd have a million grains of rice. <laughs> but, but, but what you just said is just unimaginable. Yeah, and what's even crazier is that we are closer to that number on the chessboard 
than we are to the first square. So we're, we're more than halfway to reaching a human population that size in our doublings than going back to having one person. We're on the 34th square. So halfway would be 32. We're just a couple squares past halfway. You know, that example is completely mind-blowing. I think I already had somewhat of a concept of exponential growth because when the coronavirus hit, there were all sorts of YouTube videos circulating, trying to explain like how we flatten the curve and stuff like that. And I remember an example about like a pond and it starts with one lily pad. And let's say it takes a hundred days to fill up the entire pond with lily pads. And I'm trying to remember the exact details of it, but I can't quite remember. No, I, th- I think I remember the one you're talking about. And, and what they say is, if you're the owner of the pond and you say, I'm going to wait until the thing's half full before I really start trying to clean it out because it looks like it's just growing so slowly. But if you wait until the pond is half full, that's day 99. And on day 100, the pond is completely covered and your fish are all dead. You had one day at that time to be able to clean out your lily pond. So that example is awesome because it doesn't only show how big of a change can happen, but it also shows how fast the changes happen. One more kind of crazy stat of the chessboard example. We would need 1.2 billion Earths with the same current population that we have on this Earth to reach that nine quintillion number. So essentially, when you take 1.9 billion and multiply it times the almost 8 billion that we're at, that would get you that number. And we're closer to that than we are to zero. That is absolutely nuts. It is. It's just, it's an insane concept. And just for the sake of really rubbing this in here, let's say that I handcuffed you to the top row of Yankee Stadium. Have you been to Yankee Stadium? No. Me neither. But I imagine that it's huge. (laughs) I think of any baseball stadium and they look massive, right? And Yankee's one of the biggest. So you're handcuffed to the top. If we start with just one single drop of water placed on the home plate and we doubled that every minute, how long do you think it would take before the entire stadium would be filled with water? I don't even know how to guess. I mean, the examples that we've talked about so far are just mind-blowing. So I imagine it's just something crazy. Yeah, so it actually only takes 55 minutes before the stadium is full to the brim of water. That one drop of water will double 55 times before it's enough water to fill the entirety of Yankees Stadium from floor to top row. And what's crazy is at minute 54, it was half full. At minute 53, it was a quarter of the way full. At minute 50, it was only 3% full. So you could be sitting in the top row thinking, I've got all the time in the world, and five minutes later, you're drowning. So I know it's a lot of examples, but hopefully that gets the point across that you hit a point where the doubling just becomes insane. Now, there's a few ways in which we are growing exponentially that presents a really crucial danger to our society. So the first is in population. Our population growth rate is currently 1.1%. And this has varied a lot through history. It is slowing down. But at our current growth rate of 1.1%, the population will double once every 65 years. And the growth rate over the last 100 years or so was much quicker. And we've actually quadrupled in size since the 1930s. So essentially, we've had two doublings in the last 90 years. And at the current growth rate, we'll double every 65 years. But the more important number, and one that is not slowing down is our economic growth rate. The rate at which our economy grows right now is between 3.3 and 3.5% annually over the last 40 years. Now that means that our economy will double every 22 years. And that is not very long to be experiencing doublings. And the way we measure economic growth is based on GDP. So what GDP is, is gross domestic product. It is pretty much all the goods and services produced globally every year. Now, population growth is easier to visualize because a population doubling uses more resources and takes up more space. So it's kind of easier to see that in our minds of what that actually looks like. Economic growth is harder to visualize because it's more numbers-based and we don't really know what we're getting with that doubling each time. But essentially what that means is the amount of stuff that we produce and sell is doubling every 22 years. And what this also means is that to produce things, we have to use energy. And so our energy use also grows with that economic growth. And as a matter of fact, for every 1% the economy grows, there is a one quarter percent in oil growth as well. And that number has stayed astonishingly consistent throughout time. 
I'm glad that we've already talked about energy and all the resources that we're burning through. Because at first, when you say, hey, we're doubling our population every 60 years, but we are doubling our economy every 22 years, I'm like, oh, that sounds awesome. That means we're being like really productive and really efficient and effective. But when you tie in, hey, it takes a lot of resources to produce everything we're producing, that's where I can see that this has an issue. Yeah, and as a collapseware person, I forget that the rest of the world views economic growth as something to celebrate wholeheartedly. And so that's my fault for not making that more clear and, and explaining that. Yeah, economic growth to most people is cause for celebration because there's progress and there's more money in the economy and, and all these things. And when we view it from a collapse standpoint, what we're viewing it as is economic growth requires increased energy usage. So as we double our economic growth every 22 years, then we're doubling the amount of energy that we have to consume. The economy cannot grow without the use of energy. So thank you for bringing that up. That's a great point. So it's hard to see how we're going to exponentially increase the amount of energy we use in the Western world because it feels like we're kind of already there, you know, like we're at the peak of our technological greatness. And how are we going to double that every 22 years? And the truth is that in the Western world, we may not. But when you look at the rest of the world and the developing countries, they are the ones that are currently playing catch up to us because they see the things that we have and they want progress and economic growth just like we have. And I mean, hey, I want them to have prosperity as well, right? It's not fair for me to sit in America and say, well, they shouldn't grow because it's going to do the whole world harm. I'm sitting here on this pedestal, so they, they should get to too. And so that's what they are doing. And so countries like India and China and parts of Africa are starting to dramatically increase vehicle purchases and more people are now getting to drive, which means more gasoline is being consumed, right? And now there's the availability of more products like smartphones and computers and all of these things that require more and more energy. And so as they're quickly playing catch up, it is dramatically increasing the amount of energy that's being consumed. Here's another paradigm shift for you. A lot of people don't realize or really think about that America only makes up 4% of the world's population and the developed countries of the world only make up less than 20%. So that other 80% of the entire globe are the ones that are currently playing catch up to try and get to where we are. Yeah, when you describe it that way, I can see why that's cause for concern. And I hear you continuing to mention energy and how it's all about energy and the energy that we use to grow at that rate. Is that the only issue? If we could solve the energy problem, then is that kind of growth no longer an issue? Awesome question. So I bring up energy a lot, especially because that was the last thing that we talked about in the last episode. So that's the most relevant to what we've talked about so far. But that's a great question because no, it's not the only thing. And there are lots of other issues to our continued growth that already cause problems and will continue to cause problems in the future. So from an ecological perspective, and which, by the way, when I, ecology refers to the study of how we relate to each other and how we also relate to our surroundings of the environment. And so from an ecological perspective, our exponential growth negatively affects the environment. It also negatively affects biodiversity. So other beings besides humans that are in the environment. And ultimately, it also negatively affects ourselves. Got it. And so to talk a little bit about that, there's another ecological term to understand, which is called carrying capacity. And I think people have probably heard this term before. It's a word that's usually used with like animals or plants. And essentially what that is, it's the number of a certain species that a region can support. And we've already discussed some of the technological advancements that have allowed society over time to become complex. And essentially what that means is that we have been able to increase our carrying capacity over time. When a species its carrying capacity, that means that it uses more resources than the area can regenerate. And eventually that leads that species to collapse. So a good example to show carrying capacity is to go back to when there were hunter-gatherers. There were only so many animals for those people to hunt and consume. And so if there were too many people in an area, they might overconsume the number of animals that were there. What that would cause is the population in that area to die off until it went back down below the carrying capacity. One thing to consider with that example, though, 
is that if they overhunt and kill too many of the animals, they risk lowering the carrying capacity of the area because now there are not enough animals for even a lower number of people to hunt. For example, they might hunt that species of animal into extinction. That would cause the carrying capacity of that area to be zero. So that just goes to show that as a population overshoots their carrying capacity, they actually lower what that carrying capacity is along the way. And so that'll be important. We'll come back to that later. Got it. But then humans started to learn how to increase the carrying capacity of a given area of land. So, for example, when agriculture was introduced, many more people could be sustained on the same amount of land because we could better control the food available there. We could grow our own crops, domesticate the animals. And so by doing these things, we were able to increase our population and thereby increase our complexity to the point where we are today. So beyond technological advancements, there's two other ways that we can increase the carrying capacity. The first is something called takeover. And essentially what that means is that if we outgrow the land that we're living in, and if we're going to overshoot it, we simply move into other lands. And so there's tons of examples of this throughout history where we just expand. And in the process of expanding, we tend to sort of bulldoze and harm the biodiversity, whether that be other species, and unfortunately, sometimes other civilizations or people that were native to the area. So a good example of that is when Europeans found North America. They were able to find tons of new opportunities here in a land of plentiful resources. But in order to acquire that, they had to bulldoze the native population that already lived here. The other way to increase carrying capacity is called drawdown. And so what drawdown is referring to is that we can only survive by using resources that are not able to be regenerated, which is exactly what we talked about last episode, non-renewable resources like fossil fuels. So every time we start to use fossil fuels, that's called drawdown, because essentially what it means is we are taking from an energy source of the past. It's not an energy source of the present. It's not energy that we are able to continually use. And the entire last episode was basically us talking about the dangers of drawdown. Okay, so this sounds a lot to me like when we talked about complexity before and population growth, but now we're just talking about it in terms of carrying capacity. And if I understand right, you're saying there's only a certain amount of carrying capacity we can have in an area. We can overcome that through technology, or we can find a new area to expand to, or we can just find more resources. And maybe we will come up with new technologies. When it comes to expanding, it seems like we've already kind of covered the globe. There's not a ton of new areas to expand to. So I guess I'm just wondering, like, what is the carrying capacity of the earth? Is that even something we can know? Is that a ridiculous question to ask? No, it's not ridiculous at all. Um, it's complicated, but it's not ridiculous. So I think we can't know for certain what the exact number of humans the earth can, can hold. But there's a book called Overshoot by a man named William Catton. It's a great book, highly recommended. And he states that without fossil fuels involved, the earth's capacity is likely around 10% of what the current population is. So basically he would say that if we weren't drawing down fossil fuels, we weren't using non-renewable energy, and just went based off of what we can do with the land, then our population would be about 10% of what it is now. Wow. Yeah, and that's really why fossil fuels are so important. When I say that our population is where it is, I don't mean by a little bit. I mean that fossil fuels have really driven us to be able to explode to 10 times where we really could have been. Well, and when you talk about how much we've increased our fossil fuel usage, and then you also say that since like, what was it, the 1930s, we've quadrupled. There are four times more humans on the earth than there were just that recently. That makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And the truth is we've, we've overshot our carrying capacity and by quite a bit. And like I mentioned before, the longer a society is in overshoot, the lower their carrying capacity actually becomes. So the, the higher you get, really, the further you have to fall. Not just because you're increasing, but because the floor is falling out from below you as well. And in our case, the reason for this is that we are doing damage to the environment and to our biodiversity. Like our example of the people that were overhunting, that is exactly what we're doing. We are over-farming, so we're doing damage to our land. When it comes to arable land, for example, there is only so much that can be used to grow crops and livestock, um, our forests. 
and Earth has actually lost 30% of its arable land in just the last 40 years. To me, that is an incredibly scary stat. In only 40 years, we've lost almost a third of our arable land. Most of that is due to urban encroachment, so we're building roads and cities and suburbs and factories. We're tearing down trees, and it takes up a lot of space. But climate change, the pollution, and topsoil degradation are also huge problems for arable land. When it comes to topsoil, almost 100% of our food requires topsoil to grow it in. But the world's soil is eroding at 10 to 100 times the rate that can be generated. It's believed that we only have 60 years left of topsoil. And that's because we're doing really aggressive forms of agriculture. We're constantly tilling it. We're constantly turning it over. It's getting eroded away as we move it around. That sort of thing ruins the soil that we have available to grow food in. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. And just like oil, even though they say we have 60 years left, we're not going to use every last ounce of soil available out there. It'll hit a point where we hit a peak in topsoil availability as well. And therefore the food production peaks and we have troubles there also. Can I raise one concern here? Yeah. I know I have a naturally more skeptical personality and I kind of take all of this with a grain of salt. But when I hear you talk about, well, we're running out of arable land and our topsoil availability is going down. When I'm flying in an airplane, I look down and I see a populated area and it's tiny. And then you fly and for minutes, you're just seeing land that is not covered in people. And it feels like there really is so much land that we haven't gotten to yet. Land that we could be farming on or that we could be using the resources there. So I'm a little bit skeptical of these numbers. It feels like we're only just getting started with all the land and resources that are still available. Yeah, that's a great point. And from an airplane looking down at the land, it sure does seem like there is a ton of land. And the truth is that just because there is land doesn't mean that it's land that food can be grown in, or arable land. As a matter of fact, only one-fifth of all the Earth's land is arable. And, like I mentioned, we've lost 30% of that in the last 40 years, so we're continuing to lose the availability of that land. When I fly in an airplane, I'm always amazed at how much farmland I do see. It's incredible to me to see how much crops are being grown. And the arable land that is left is pretty much all near rivers and bodies of water, And most of the arable land that isn't being used to grow food right now is in South America along the Amazon. And that's all trees, which are really important to our Earth's ability to pull carbon out of the air and provide us with oxygen. So anytime you use available arable land, you're taking away what's already on that land to replace it with crops to grow food for humans. So for example, if we're taking away the trees from the Amazon in order to grow food for more people, we are thereby doing more damage to the environment and to ourselves in the long run. Yeah, that's a good point. And it gets even scarier when you think about the fact that right now in the world, 820 million people go hungry every year. That's over 10% of the population. Now, they're not necessarily going hungry because we don't have enough food to grow. It's more of a poverty issue, but that will be greatly exacerbated by us running low on the amount of land that we have to grow food because that's going to cause food prices to increase. And if people already can't afford food, how are they going to be able to afford food when the prices start to go up? So when you say over 10% of the population goes hungry every year, what does that mean? Like go hungry? Like they starve? 
Yeah, so there's a few different definitions given around hunger and being food insecure. So hunger is that 820 million I just mentioned. Food insecure is actually closer to around 2 billion, so over a quarter of the population. What it means to be food insecure is basically that you don't always know where your next meal is going to come from, and you don't always know if food is going to be available to you. So those people aren't necessarily hungry or starving. When we talk about hunger, we're talking more about a population that has malnourishment. They're not getting the food that they need to be healthy. When it comes to the number of people that are dying of starvation every year, they believe the number is somewhere around 10 million globally. Yeah, that makes sense. And like we talked about living in some poorer countries, I got to see some of that firsthand. But even then hearing those numbers, like 2 billion people who aren't sure where their next meal is going to come from, that's pretty alarming. Yeah, and it's actually a little bit of a paradigm shift for me when I learned that in the U.S., that number is 40 million. That's a, that's a very significant part of the U.S. population that is food insecure. And to increase the challenge, by 2050, we're going to need to be able to grow half again as much food as we currently do in order to feed the population. So you, when you picture arable land and all the things we just talked about, about the sacrifices we have to make to get more arable land, that becomes very difficult. Just like with oil and the EROEI of oil decreasing because it costs more to get oil out of the ground, it's the same way with food and agriculture. As we go to more arable land in different places, these are places that are harder to access and that are harder to transform into places where we can grow food. And so that, again, will increase the price of food coming from those areas. So biodiversity, or essentially like all living things on the planet, is extremely important to human survival. Beyond just the fact that we should just care and respect all living things, it's actually a really important resource for us to be able to continue living. There's an estimated 8 million species on Earth. Now, they haven't counted all these species. That is an estimate. They said it would take thousands of years to really actually, like, to categorize each species and give them a name and all that. But this large interconnected web of food chains and life cycles play a really vital role in things like pollination, where we get our medicines and climate regulation, things like seed dispersal and natural water purification. They're things we don't really think about, but they're what keeps everything in balance. And obviously, most importantly, we rely on biodiversity for our food. And so scientists believe that of those 8 million species, around 1 million are currently threatened with extinction in the coming decades. And I mentioned a little bit last episode that they believe we're in this sixth mass extinction. In the billions of years of Earth's existence, there's only been five other mass extinction events. And they think that we are right now in the sixth, and it's caused by our own rapid advancement. Yeah, when I was younger, I thought I would be a vet when I grew up, and so I was really fascinated by animals. And I remember learning in school that everything is so interconnected. Like, people might be in an area and they think the mosquitoes are annoying, so they spray for the mosquitoes to kill them all. But then that causes some other animal population to not have their food source, which causes some other animal population to not have theirs, and these plants are affected by it, and all of a sudden... These other plants aren't getting pollinated and and you take out one little cog in the whole wildlife ecosystem and suddenly things start to pull apart. I was really disappointed to learn that humans and domesticated animals, especially those used in agriculture, like cows and pigs and sheep and chickens, make up 98% of all of Earth's biomass and wild animals make up just the other two. So like growing up as a kid, I always thought like, you know, the rainforests and like all these different places in the world were just filled with like endless wonders of animals and all these wild animals when really we have dominated the earth, taking over 98% of all living things. Sheesh. Yeah. Honestly, it's like, it's a shame. <laughs> it made me really sad. So biodiversity loss is caused primarily by pollution, by climate change, um, by habitat loss and the introduction of invasive species into new environments, all which are being caused by our overshoot. All right, so I feel like you have given me lots of numbers, like, hey, we're going to run out of fish by this year, and we're going to be at double the population by this year, and we're going to be at double the economy by this year. And and the question, I know I brought this up before, but the question that always comes back to me, like the number I'm always looking for is like, what year is this all going down, or or how much time do we have, how much urgency is there in all of this from your 
perspective. Yeah, I I wish I could give you a year. I wish I could give you a decade, right? There's no way of knowing the exact time because there's so many variables. It's just a crazy amount of things that could happen between now and the next few decades that we, we really don't know. But um, there's actually a book that I have mentioned a couple times already called Limits to Growth. And the whole purpose of that book was for them to say, based on everything that we do know and based on all the inputs that we can use, what does the future look like for, for us? And so this, this book actually came about back in 1972. There was a group of scientists and academics at MIT that came together and actually created a computer model to try and tell us that. Now, their goal was not to be able to say exactly when this happened. They more wanted to know what is going to happen with a general idea of a time frame. And so if you read Limits to Growth, it is a pretty kind of wordy intellectual book. And it's funny because in the book, they mentioned that they left the intellectual stuff for a different study. And I was blown away by that because this one was quite intellectual. So I can't imagine what the other one was like. But they broke it down for us. They said, here's all the scenarios that we put into the system to see what do the next hundred years look like for us. Now, I know I've recommended a few books and videos here, and I hope to eventually get these up on a website so that you have immediate access to them. But this book is an essential read to me if you want to understand our path to collapse. So you can find this book for free as a PDF on one of the author's website. Her name is Donella Meadows. Just search Limits to Growth PDF. It will take you to her website and you can download it free from there. So I've actually got it here with me today so that we can kind of go through these scenarios. So if you don't have time to read it, then we can go over it right now. Based on their modeling, they came up with three conclusions. The first conclusion, and so I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but they said that if the present growth trends continue, the limits to growth on this planet will be reached sometime within the next 100 years. The most probable result will be a rather sudden and uncontrollable decline in both population and industrial capacity. So without using the word collapse, they defined collapse and said that it would happen most likely in the next 100 years. The second conclusion they came up with, they said it is possible to alter these growth trends and to establish a condition of ecological and economic stability that is sustainable far into the future. So they said this doesn't have to be the only option. And the third conclusion was if the world's people decide to strive for the second outcome rather than the first, the sooner they begin working to attain it, the greater will be their chances of success. That sounds like a fancy way to say something pretty simple, which is just like, hey, we're on the path to destruction. We can correct course. The sooner we correct course, the less likely it is to meet our doom. Exactly. Like I said, the book is pretty intellectual, <laughs> but that's a great way to put it in, in better words. So... The second and third sound pretty hopeful, right? And so we're going to talk about that throughout the course of this book and why probably we shouldn't get our hopes up too much. Oh, goody. <laughs> yeah. So let's jump in and look at some of the scenarios they ran then. And before we actually look at those, I want to describe the main aspects of society that they included in this model. So the main things that they took into account were our population, non-renewable resources, which we've discussed at length, arable land, and our capacity to make food, our industrial output, so GDP and economic growth, like we've talked about, is doubling every 22 years, pollution, and services, so things like health services, welfare, other public services that we have available to us. Those are the, those are the really main ones that they included, though there was tons of more complicated things that they talked about having to put into the model. So it's not like th this entirely simplistic model. It was actually pretty complicated. But for the purposes of our conversation, we're talking about it from these simple terms. Now, the book shows a series of charts to describe each scenario. And so it's difficult to describe a chart in words here and make sure that everyone's getting the picture of them. So number one, I would encourage that if you're listening to this, maybe pause the podcast now, Google limits to growth, PDF, download it so you can take a look um, at it. We're going to start on page 124. If you don't want to do that, I'm going to do my best to describe what the charts are saying without trying to describe the lines and things like that, because that's not going to be helpful. 
So before we dive in, again, I want to make it clear that the book doesn't predict exact years or exact population numbers that we're going to hit when collapse happens. So I'm not going to be here telling you that scenario one says that exactly 9,400,000,000 people were going to collapse. That's not what it is. So it's just meant to be a more general idea of the behavior of complex society for each scenario. Okay, so the first scenario they did, they called it the standard run. Essentially what that means is business as usual, meaning we're just going to keep going and doing things the way that we are. So what we get from this chart is that from 1900 to 1972, we've only used a very small portion of our non-renewable resources, about 5%. So it's no wonder that people around that time and even up to now weren't really panicking about it. It was just such a little percent. But just like the guy handcuffed to the top of Yankee Stadium, looking down at just a tiny bit of water below, and five minutes later he was drowned, in this scenario... It shows that as population and especially industrial output or the economic growth in GDP grows exponentially, the amount of resources declines rapidly. And essentially, we fall off of the energy cliff. So we went from using 5% to using an extremely high number. Again, it doesn't give specific numbers, but it shows that, that as we added more complexity to the structure, as we grew exponentially, it required ever more resources. And so this, in this scenario, it was made manifest by a peak and rapid decline in GDP and food availability right at the same time. So basically what that means is our resources depleted so rapidly that it screwed up our economy. And also our population grew so rapidly that we ran out of food to be able to feed everyone. And this all happened within, in the chart, it looks like probably about 10 years or so. So the population continues to rise for a time. But then it peaks and declines rapidly as food availability becomes scarce, as well as access to some of those services like healthcare and welfare go away. And essentially, that's the collapse. And so the process by which this all happens is super fascinating. And I've dedicated the last portion of this episode to describe what that looks like. But first, we're going to take a look at some of the other high-level scenarios they presented in the book. Um, so we know what other possible outcomes could look like as well. And again, while the graph doesn't show years along the x-axis, besides at the beginning it shows 1900, and at the end it shows 2100, we kind of get an idea of where things are happening on the chart. And it looks like the collapse begins somewhere in the first 30 years or so of this century, and that it's fulfilled, looks like somewhere between 2040 and 2060. Again, don't take that as Corey's saying that collapse is going to happen in those years. It's just kind of a general idea of what you see in, in the timeline of the book. So in the second scenario, they said, all right, let's assume that in the coming decades, they're going to be able to find more resources. So they said, let's actually double the amount of resources available, which I personally think is a very optimistic scenario. And the reason is because, I mean, people might say, well, we've got renewables now. And we found more resources. But the truth is, this book was written in 1972. The peak of oil discoveries had already happened globally 10 years before this. And so since then, the amount of oil that we've found is very, very relatively little. There's no way that we have doubled our resources by then. And also when it comes to renewables, well, renewables right now only make up 11% of total global energy consumption. So this is still a very optimistic scenario in my opinion. So in this scenario, the chart shows that our industrial outputs explode, meaning there is massive economic growth. And with that exponential growth, it results in several doublings in the end of the 1900s and in the first decades of the 2000s. And every time it doubles, fossil fuel emissions double with it. So this results in three things happening almost simultaneously in the chart. Pollution explodes and goes through the roof. Arable land and food production runs out. And get this, we still run out of resources, even though they doubled. So on the graph, this looks like somewhere between 2020 and 2040. So it gives us a little bit more time than the previous scenario, but the maximum maybe a decade more. And that's the absolute power and terror of exponential growth. That even though we doubled resources, we doubled our economic growth in the same amount of time and consumed all those resources. So you're telling me this is data-driven, that they actually looked at, here's the trends and the path that we're on, and they plugged it into a computer model, and these are the results we're getting. 
That's right. Yeah, this isn't them just coming up with their own hypotheses. And they weren't even necessarily biased to try and find out what was going to make us collapse. They built a, a scenario specifically around the data that was already available regarding historic patterns of growth and expected growth in the future. Okay, so scenario one, you're saying we just continue status quo and we're going to run out of resources. We're in big trouble. Scenario number two, they're like, hey, what if we had double the resources? But even then, we're still going to run out of resources and we're going to cause all these other problems. That's right. We ran out of food. There was too much pollution because we put too much fossil fuels out into the environment and we still hit peak energy. All right, so that brings us to scenario three. In this one, they were like, all right, let's not just double the resources. Let's say we have unlimited resources. And essentially, their reasoning with that was to say that maybe we would figure out like nuclear fusion and we'd figure out how to dispose of all the waste and it would make sense and we would have unlimited amounts of resources. So in this scenario, pollution became such a problem so fast that it directly caused the collapse, partly by killing people off, but also by destroying arable land needed for food. Um, and the increasing population needing ever more food was also met with a declining amount of arable land available. So essentially what this meant is we were able to grow without limitation of needing the resources to make that growth happen. But that just meant there was no way we could have enough food to feed all the people that were coming. And also we polluted the environment to such that it killed us. And so when it comes to pollution and its role in collapse, we haven't really discussed that in depth yet. But in essence, pollution causes biodiversity loss, dead oceans, a decrease in arable land, and of course, uncontrolled climate change and others. So we'll discuss climate change and biodiversity loss more in upcoming episodes. But for the sake of this model, just know that given unlimited resources, pollution would cause our collapse and within just a decade or two of the previous scenarios. Okay, so this to me is crazy because up to this point, we've talked a lot about resources and energy and I just thought like, okay, if we can solve those problems, if we can get those figured out, then we're all set. But this is like, we are doomed to lose. No matter how much you stack the team, no matter how much you are given everything you need to succeed, you're still going to lose. That's right. And we've only looked at the first three scenarios, but it's, it's called limits to growth for a reason. It's not just energy that limits our growth. It's, it's all the problems caused by overshoot. Simply put, we live on a finite planet. And therefore, there has to be a point at which we cannot grow anymore. Okay, so scenario four, they're like, all right, unlimited resources, and we figure out how to control pollution, because that was our big problem in the last one. So they're like, okay, if we can cut pollution emissions down to 25% of what they're currently at, what happens then? And so they're being increasingly optimistic now, right? And frankly, it's probably unrealistic, but for the, for the sake of saying... If we want to survive, what do we have to do to get there? It's good to, to run the models. So essentially in this scenario, we're saying we've reversed climate change. We've stopped putting microplastics in the oceans, no more harmful chemicals, and we have unlimited resources. So congratulations. In this scenario, we may not see collapse until we're retired. And that's me talking to you, Kellen. We're 30, so um, you know we might make it another 35 or 40 years before we saw a collapse happen. This time the model says it comes from food shortage. Our population grows to a point where there's not enough arable land left to feed us all. And this model even included higher yields per acre as our industrial output grew. So essentially they were saying, as we produced more and more stuff, we also got smarter and smarter. And there were some technological advancements that allowed us to learn how to use the arable land that we already have better. And it didn't matter. We still ran out of land to feed people. And because of that, there was a die-off. All right, so scenarios five and six, I'm going to go through these a little bit faster. There's only, uh, there's only three more scenarios. So in these next two scenarios, on top of the already unlimited resources and pollution control, they now say, let's double the amount of arable land and add in birth control. Because as they say, okay, our population increases too much and that's what's causing us to run out of food, but we're also going to double the amount of food that we have to make sure that we could really get there. So in these scenarios, even though pollution controls had been put in place, the total amount of production grew to such a limit that those controls still couldn't contain the amount of waste and pollution put into the environment, and pollution still led to our collapse. The food production, even though they doubled it, still hit a decline towards the end and almost ran out. And all of this still took place before 2070. So, I mean, look, 
it gives us longer, and it's still saying that the collapse came about by just pollution, and even though they quadrupled our our effectiveness of taking care of pollution, and all of this being such an optimistic scenario, and frankly unrealistic, outlandish scenario, and still, like, by 2070, it still led to collapse, which is just unbelievable to me. That part about mandated birth control and and limiting the number of kids that people can have... Did they say, like, what exactly that looked like? Like, if we only let people have, like, one kid or two kids? Yeah, they didn't really describe the exact mechanics by which we would achieve that. You know, that could be through, like, strict laws, like going back to China's, you know, one-child policy. And it might just be that they assume people will do it of their own volition and decide to stop having children. Also, a part of it is that they say if they could provide the entire world with birth control options, where a lot of underdeveloping nations right now don't really have that. So they're having a lot of kids just because they, they don't have the option not to. So I think it's a, it's probably a combination of all of those things. But if they basically just said we could put a control on birth, then where would we be? But to me, honestly, it does sound a little dystopian. Like we'd probably have to require people to not be having children and we can't even get people to wear masks. So you can see kind of maybe where that would go. Okay, so now this leads us to scenario seven. And remember, they had three conclusions, right? This has to do with those second and third conclusions about the hope side of it. So finally, they said, we're going to do this. We're going to cut the resource usage down to one quarter of the present. So we're going to be way more efficient or basically just stop using fossil fuels by 1975. And we're only going to allow as many births as there are deaths. So essentially, we're going to say every time someone dies, we can allow another child to be born into the earth. So that, I mean, basically the population level would stay exactly at what it was. They also said that all economic growth potential had to be put towards conserving arable land and preventing topsoil loss and increasing food production, which means a standard of living about half of what it was in the U.S. of 1972. So basically saying we're going to take ourselves to half of where we were in 1972 with our standard of living and give that to everyone in the world. I mean, doing something like this would require abolishment of capitalism, right? There couldn't be a free market. It would likely require some sort of dictatorial control, especially with like, you know, we're talking about the birth control side of things and stuff too. And like I mentioned, it needed to have taken place before you and I were even born. In this scenario, we made it. It showed that we were able to continue to survive as a civilization at that population level, which by the way was a 1985 population level, and at a standard of living half of whatever the 1972 standard of living was. It's been 50 years since 1972, which means we have doubled two and a half times since then with our standard of living. So you can kind of imagine what half of that standard of living would look like in this scenario. But here's the kicker. They said this had to be done by 1975. And again, that the population couldn't increase above what the 1985 population was. And the depressing part was, yeah, the chart only goes to 2100, and it showed that we made it that far. But at the trail end, you see the resources starting to come down low enough to the point where it would have about caused another collapse. So we would have made it into the 2100s. You and I would have died having not seen our civilization collapse. Our children probably would have as well. But our grandchildren would likely experience the same thing that we're looking at experiencing now with collapse. And all of this with, again, an unbelievably unrealistic and already past opportunity. Man, I think this blows my mind more than anything that we've talked about so far. To think like the only way we could possibly prevent collapse is to go back in a time machine, cut our resource use like down to a quarter of what we were using, make it so the population couldn't grow, do all these crazy things that are so unrealistic. And even then, we would just barely make it maybe to 2100. <laughs> that's, that's right. That's right. And I mean, honestly, if you've got the time machine, just go back to when agriculture was started and just prevent that from happening. Let's just stay hunter-gatherers for the rest of forever. You and I probably wouldn't have been born, but at least we would have stayed below the carrying capacity. 
Well, Kellen, I had planned on going on to the next section now, which is catabolic collapse, which is going to explain a little bit more the mechanism of how collapse happens and what it looks like. But we've already been going for an hour tonight. I think it might be best to leave that for next week. Yeah, I agree. I, I've i got a lot to process right now, and I imagine anyone who's listening probably needs a break as well. Okay, sounds good. We'll pick up where we left off. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hi, my name is Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic, and I'm excited to talk to you about Club Med. Club Med operates beach and mountain resorts and is the best all-inclusive getaway for families. They have Club Med Punta Cana, their flagship family resort, and many other options in Mexico, the Caribbean, and around the world. Club Med are the pioneers of the all-inclusive concept, which is the best way to vacation. Great for families, groups, or even solo travelers looking for land and water sports, delicious food. Food and a place to make unforgettable memories. Visit clubmed.us, call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor.